thank you very much and welcome back. We're um, Leon and I are just regaining our equanimity after hearing from our friend Hugh. The world's coming to an end. But uh, now we're going to talk about ARDS. So th- there you go, Danny. There's a, p- there's a perfect segue for you. I am very pleased to welcome the incredibly patient and very flexible, in terms of scheduling, I emphasize, uh, Professor Danny McCauley from Queen's University, from the Royal Victoria, who this morning chaired the session ARDS, Old Friends to New Horizons. Nice snappy title, uh, Danny. It was you, Lenny, Manu, Kieran, and Bronwyn, and we're going to sort of make you responsible for summarizing a darn good session. Thanks, Peter. Uh, I think that might be the uh, best introduction I've ever had. The world is going to end and you're very flexible. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It's uh, it's the doldrums of the afternoon. I'm getting a bit tired and frontal lobby, I will admit, <laughs> which is why I'm going to hand it over to Leon. Leon, question one. Yeah, well, I guess you can't go to a critical care conference without having ARDS as one of our diseases, I guess. So uh, I'm going to take it away and, and start from the top. Um, the definition of ARDS, uh, Berlin, are we still using that? Is it changing? Has it changed? Kigali, are they in there? Yep. So um, the definition is evolving, I think would be the, the best uh, description. So there's obviously been a big change in clinical practice with the use of uh, high flow nasal oxygen, the use of uh, saturations instead of blood gases, um, and the use of ultrasound. Uh, and really this new definition tries to bring in that change in practice so that patients who have infiltrates diagnosed by ultrasound or who have a, a saturation measurement for um, hypoxia, you can fulfill the criteria for ARDS now if you're getting uh, high flow nasal oxygen, which wouldn't have been the, the case um, previously. So that's really how the definition has uh, evolved. The other um, major change that you mentioned was the Caglia, um, uh modification of the Berlin. And that's really important. That the, you know, LungSafe picked up the, the global epidemiology of, of ARDS. We, we couldn't include um, the number of patients from low-middle-income and African countries because they can't meet the definition in a resource-limited area. So we've included that uh, as a new uh, classification within the definition to allow people to, to fulfill the, the definition of RDS if you're on ward oxygen, even in the absence of having invasive ventilation or arterial blood gas monitoring. So that'll be, a, I think, an important opportunity for patients in, in these countries to um, perhaps participate in clinical trials to improve outcomes. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, if my understanding is correct, the prior iterations of uh, definitions would only include those patients who are ventilated in some form, either non-invasively or invasively because of the PEEP criteria part of it. And certainly it sounds absurd that you can only have ARDS if you're ventilated. So that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I think that's a really important point. And and in fact, even whenever uh, the Berlin was published in JAMA in 2012, the accompanying editorial pointed out that as a potential limitation that you had to be on a ventilator um, to meet the criteria. Right. And and I guess uh, COVID really exposed that. Absolutely. And, you know, we saw thousands of patients who had the, the syndrome as we recognized it on high flow nasal oxygen. And, and clearly those patients uh, had the same underlying pathological process that, that characterizes ARDS. One of the one of the parts of the definition that I just wanted to highlight was the um, the, the, the LVEDP or the, the you know a normal heart function essentially. Um, has that changed at all? Uh, are we happy with clinical criteria of heart failure or does it have to be an echo? 
So even since Berlin, it doesn't have to be an echo. So it's an um, a echo indicated in the setting of where there's lack of clarity around the, the, the ideology. And that's the same. So essentially, the conceptual framework has stayed the same. So um, you have ARDS, uh, if you've got bilateral infiltrates that are not due exclusively to cardiac dysfunction or uh, fluid overload. But it's also important to remember that you can have coexisting diseases, so you can still have ARDS in the setting of people with uh, LV uh, impairment, for example, as long as that's not the only reason for the influence. Right, so the advent of focus has not changed that. That's good to know. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, let's pivot a little bit and, and, and go on to management then. Um, anything new in the management of ARDS? So, um, sadly, the, the short answer is no. And this la- sort of touches on some of the other um, points that were made. Um, so, REMAP-CAP showed that I think we can investigate new treatments more efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that platform approach with a, uh, a Bayesian design, I think, is, is much more efficient. And it's how we practice it. You know, whenever we're at the bedside, we don't say... Now, there's patient A, you know, this is this treatment is going to work with this because the p-value is 0.05 or otherwise. You know, we think we think this is probably going to work, and, and that's what essentially Bayesian uh, uh, sort of designs do. They give you probabilities that things might work. And I guess COVID was a good example of where we were able to find treatments at pace using these more efficient uh, trial designs. However, for, for non-COVID ARDS, um, treatments uh, remain limited. We've obviously got the, the supportive care um, that we're all familiar with. The um, ESICM guidelines have literally just been uh, published in intensive care medicine and they've really confirmed the benefit of low tidal volume ventilation, um, higher PEEP positioning, uh, ECMO in the setting of having a centre that has experience with delivering ECMO. But uh, sadly, there's no pharmacological therapy to date. And I guess the question is, you know, is that because we're not doing trials efficiently enough and that's part of it? But part of it is, as we've heard, um, ARDS is a syndrome. It's a very heterogeneous syndrome. Perhaps the, the next step that we need to think about is can we take a more precision medicine approach? That was one of the talks. I, I think Carolyn Calfey from UCSF has led the way in this uh, space and has started to define phenotypes. So we're, we're familiar with hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory Lua Boss has also been doing great work in this area. It's naive, however, to think that that's the answer. So we've gone from ARDS as a dirty great big syndrome into two types of ARDS now, hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory. And I think that's a step forward because the biological processes in those two phenotypes are, are different and they may be treatable. But what we really need to do using you know a multi-omics approach is get from two different phenotypes now into much smaller groups where we understand the mechanism that might be driving this common final pathway to ARDS and then target treatments. We're sadly not at that point yet, but we are getting to the point where we can phenotype at the bedside hyperinflammatory and hypoinflammatory. And we do know again from Carlin's work that there is heterogeneity of treatment effect even within those two subtypes. So we know that if you have uh, different conservative fluids, if you have higher PEEP, if you have simvastatin, uh, a drug close to my heart that I've been uh, trying to uh, show works for respiratory failure for 20 years and, and people sort of do seem to suggest I should just accept that it's a cholesterol-lowering <laughs> drug. Uh, but uh, within simvastatin uh, as well, there is this uh, heterogeneity of treatment effect with differential effects in hyper and hypo. 
So I think the next step in our treatment pathway will be to try and take a, a more precision medicine approach. Right. Well, help me out here. ARDS, in essence, is a is a is, a, is an inflammatory disease, and uh, my understanding has always been that it's an overwhelming inflammatory disease of multiple systems, including the lungs. Then you differentiate now between a hypo and a hyperinflammatory state, and there's a clinical basis for this. Help me understand those. So that is a brilliant question, and uh, essentially hyper and hypo are really bad names. <laughs> uh, so it should be hyper and less hyper. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the story goes uh, with the original submission of the um, Carolyn's first paper. She called them class one and class two. It was actually quite hard for people to, to, to sort of accept that as a, as a concept, that it was much easier to understand hyper and hypo. But in fact, um, it, it really is hyper and, and less hyper. The, the characteristics it defines, so um, hyper-inflammatory uh, ARDS is characterized by high cytokine levels, worse acidosis, um, whereas um, hypo is characterized by higher levels of things like protein C, which are also driven by inflammation as well. So it's really different types of inflammation. And, and I think um, that's a common uh, re- regret that we, we have in people working in this area, that we haven't got the nomenclature right in terms of these phenotypes. So, so that's the background to, to where hyper and hypo. Hypo is interesting. So um, it's also probably true that you have um, higher attributable mortality in hyper versus hypo. It may be that um, hypo is driven a lot by your comorbid or or pre-morbid conditions as well as some of the biology. So there may be less influence. Whereas in hyper, it seems to be driven much more by the inflammatory process. And people with hyper-inflammatory ARDS have less comorbidity. and, And we know that again from Carolyn's work. So it may be that the, the attributable mortality that, that we're targeting is easier to deliver a reduction in, in mortality in the hyper group compared to the hypo. The, the challenge with that is that the hyper only makes up 30% of the population compared to 70% in the hypo. So, so clearly we do want to leave the, the 70% behind whenever we're designing our trials to mm-hmm. find new treatments. So just briefly, is there, um, presumably there's also a higher risk of fibrosis in this hyper-inflammatory uh, state, or is that not, not the case? So what's interesting, um, long-term fibrotic ARDS um, is much less common than it used to be, and I think that's driven by better adoption of lung protection. Okay. So in fact, it's, it's, we don't really have enough patients with fibrotic ARDS to actually work out what group they, they sort of cluster into um, and you know and certainly in our center we very rarely see um, uh, patients with fibrotic ARDS mm-hmm. and, and it's that's and that's a that's not just our center I think that's a generalized uh, finding and, and a, most people believe that that's related to better support of ventilation. Gotcha. So it sounds like it's a biological marker diagnosis more than a clinical diagnosis. It's not something that you can see on an x-ray for instance. Um, so, so really at the bedside it's still a, a hard thing to try and differentiate. Yeah, so it's it's a really good question because if we could do this using our routinely collected clinical data, that would be much more attractive. And Pratik Singh ha, has been doing a lot of work around machine learning uh, for clinical classifier for hyper and hypoinflammatory, and has reported that works with you know reasonable confidence compared to 
uh, a, a gold standard late in class uh, analysis. The problem is that we're not sure that the data that the machine learning uses to train the model is valid because it's quite historical data. And in our current practice, does that clinical classifier model still hold today? So, so that needs to be tested prospectively. In the meantime, I think we're much more likely to get to uh, point of care assays that measure the biology and use some clinical uh, um, information such as bicarbonate in almost the, the immediate term. So uh, I've been doing a project uh, to develop a point of care assay and we've now got preliminary data to suggest that you can actually phenotype someone as they come through the door of intensive care. So patients rock up to the intensive care, they fulfill the criteria for ARDS, we take a blood test, measure soluble TNFR1 and IL-6 bicarbonate from a, a, a contemporaneous gas, and then using an algorithm we can say whether someone's hyper and hypo at the bedside. And I guess that you know, that in itself is interesting to me, although I might be biased, but um, I think that the real... Uh, beauty that that offers is that we can now potentially randomize patients into trials of hyper and hypoinflammatory. Uh, you mentioned point of care a few times. I'm a cinephile and I've, I was hoping that you would mention something about point of care ultrasound. Are you aware of any uh, ways to differentiate these subtypes with, with point of care ultrasound or is that work that's underway or not at all? So that's a really good question and I'm not aware of any work. There's some beautiful uh, imaging work the, the LIVE trial looked at focal versus uh, diffuse ARDS, not, not by point of care ultrasound, but by uh, imaging. And although uh, overall that study showed no difference, it showed that a ventilatory strategy that matched the type of lung disease in those where it was correctly matched, so in the overall population there was some mismatching that happened. But if you got the right ventilatory strategy for focal versus diffuse, um, you had a better outcome and Lua Boss, you mentioned, has done a lot of the uh, phenotyping in terms of biology, is running a, a study called Pegasus with uh, Mary Smith and they're basically looking at uh, ultrasound to um, personalise the ventilatory strategy. So while it's not looking at ultrasound in the inflammatory phenotypes, it's using ultrasound as a way to phenotype a different way. But it's a really good question. Can we see differences in ultrasound characteristics, mm-hmm. the different phenotypes? So that's on my uh, to-do list. Now. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> well, um, you know, I recently um, heard about a study that um, using point-of-care ultrasound where they could predict um, response to, to prone ventilation, which... which uh, triggered me in a sense because my understanding of prone ventilation is that it's got nothing to do with whether you respond or become less hypoxemic and it's got everything to do with improving lung mechanics. It would be a crime not to ask your opinion on that. So it's a good question. Um, I mean, the, the, the mechanism by which proning works is not purely due to a change in uh, oxygenation and in fact it's interesting you know, if you look at the ARMA trial, for example, people who did better in the uh, lung protective uh, arm actually had worse hypoxia for the first three days. Right. So um, I think oxygenation as a predictive value is, is pretty poor. And even those people who don't get a change in their oxygenation have the mortality benefit. The, those people who don't respond to uh, seeing a change in oxygenation on day one, you can see it on day two if you continue to prone. So, so I think the oxygenation value in, in determining response to prone is limited. Interesting, there is some secondary analyses that suggest that if you have a CO2 response, 
that you actually see better outcomes with uh, prone positioning. And I guess that fits with the ideas that it, a lot of it's to do with the mechanics mm-hmm. and better ventilation. So you pop onto the front, the heart acts as a distending force and you uh, get the, the diaphragm going caudally so you get better ventilation. And there's also some really cool stuff that I truth don't really understand about the geometry of pulmonary vasculature. So even though you go onto your front and you get better uh, distension of the, the bases of the lungs, you would imagine that you're on, on your front, the blood would be dependent, but because the vasculature, the pulmonary vascular changes, you still get better blood supply to the, the, the non-dependent ventilated area. And, and again, I don't understand why the, why the blood just doesn't gravitationally, but there is some uh, really nice work from uh, Ricard um, who did this in an uh, animal model of ARDS. You know, um, the, this article that I mentioned um, was was mentioned in a, in a ultrasound grand rounds that we had, and, and unfortunately, at that, well, I, I became concerned that people would then start using point of care ultrasound to either prone or not prone, which 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 was horrifying in my mind. And yeah, um, do the trial. <laughs> Let's do the yeah, trial. Yeah, yeah. This was observation. <laughs> so um, steroids. I think of of late. The most recent trials, I guess, would be a recovery and then um, the, the DEX odds. Why is the dosing so different? I mean, is, is, is COVID ARDS so much different than, than regular ARDS? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, and as you might imagine, we spent hours uh, having this discussion. And in fact, a, a, a good friend, Tom Martin, wanted us to do six and 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really hard to do a big phase three trial with two arms uh, never mind uh, three arms so 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 are, are the two diseases that different um they're probably closer to being the same disease rather than a different disease but i think there are some uh, differences in the uh, in, inflammatory responses but but to answer your first question they're, they're probably closer together than, than apart yeah. so why are we not using uh six so dex ards use the, the 20 for 5 and then 10 for 5 and, and that was a really well conducted efficacy trial and we don't have any data for 6 in non-COVID um, ARDS um, and really for, for that main reason that um, DEX ARDS showed a promising signal we, we didn't want to do a 6 milligram study and then get to the end of it and, and find perhaps no difference and people say well why didn't you use so we started with the, the higher dose. If we find a benefit with the higher dose, perhaps the the next question would be, well, could you use a, a lower dose if that's a, an important question? I think if we see benefit with 20, probably doesn't matter if we've used 20 or 6. Superb discussion. Um, delighted to realise that a disease I thought I knew, there's still far more to find out <laughs> and there's still more nuance to it. A couple of quick questions as we close off. All right, I'll bite. Simvastatin. Why? <laughs> So, multiple reasons essentially fixes the pulmonary endothelium. That's the one of the characteristic hallmarks of uh, ARDS with leaky capillaries causing uh, pulmonary edema. And it's a, a weak anti-inflammatory. Secondary analysis of HARP2, Carolyn did, um, showed the treatment benefit in the hyperinflammatory. So I think the next question we need to ask is, is there a, a treatment benefit in hyperinflammatory ARDS? And then... Just to sort of uh, tantalize, uh, we have recently completed the simvastatin domain in Remap Cap. We have recruited 2,900 patients into the domain, and the answer is... Oh, <laughs> pregnant pause, I like that. Can't tell you. <laughs> 
Well, then let's go back to steroids. Um, hyper-inflammatory, slightly less, but still hyper-inflammatory. Any signal that one, it helps and one, it harms? That's always been a thought. Yeah, uh, it's a good, good question. And essentially what we've decided to do with this trial is, is go with a broad uh, population of patients with ARDS. But we plan to look at that specific question as a, a secondary analysis. So I, I think where there's uncertainty as to whether there's heterogeneity treatment effect, it's much better to start broad and then focus in um, and look at it as a, as a sort of subgroup analysis at the end. I mean, it is interesting. I mean, steroids are, are mentioned in the 1967 description of uh, ARDS as a potential therapy. We're still at steroids. Uh, hopefully this will be the definitive trial. Now, we're still at syndromes as well. So let's go there for a second. We, we've argued in the past it might be like a bunch of football players all wearing different jerseys and different socks, but calling themselves a team. Do we use syndrome because it's helpful and it groups people together? Or do we use it because we're not sophisticated enough to use genomics, phenotype, metallobics? Yeah, so I think um, that's a really important point. I mean, I've obviously made a career out of uh, ARDS research. Should we be moving away from syndromes to these treatable traits? I think that is the direction of travel. I think the syndrome helps describing the clinical characteristics that make up a bunch of patients. But beneath that, there will be absolutely different phenotypes, different endotypes, you know, mechanisms that are driving these phenotypes. And below that, probably druggable, treatable traits. So in my mind, in the future of um, critical care will likely be uh, get admitted to ICU, you're on pressors for sepsis or not, you're on a mechanical ventilator because you've got acute hypoxic respiratory failure, and it doesn't matter whether you've got sepsis or ARDS as a label, below that you've got this mechanism that's active or that mechanism that's active, and that's what we treat you with. So I think that's the future. But if it's as much a teleologic definition, are we, are we eventually going to lose ARDS as an acronym too and just call it ARD? Uh, so I think we might just have patients who are on ventilators Fair and enough. receiving pressors. And below that, it doesn't matter if you've got ARDS or not, below that will be the, the treatable trait. You've done a remarkable job of summarizing five talks from this morning. Thank you. The one person we've missed out is uh, Bronwyn, who presented on long-term outcomes. And that's what matters. Absolutely. And it's absolutely critical. We've recently just published some of the long-term data uh, from our REST trial that that looked at lower tidal volume ventilation with CO2 removal. And that has just focused the mind. The the burden of symptoms that that Bronwyn highlighted, even in our most recent trial, it's not that they're, they're getting any better. Those are really, you know, the undertook a series of questionnaires, including uh, this George respiratory questionnaire, and the, the symptom burden that we identified from that respiratory questionnaire was higher than a cohort of patients with asthma and COPD. So, you know, th- th- that was in terms of respiratory morbidity. There's also all of the other morbidity that Bronwyn highlighted, the cognitive impacts similar to mild to moderate dementia, the, the, the burden of psychiatric uh, disease and also even the, the, the societal uh, impact in terms of not being able to get back to work. So clearly, whenever we think about early interventions, we, we, we really do need to be keeping an eye on long term. But, but again, what we do in the intensive care does have um, long term uh, impact. Dale Needham did a really nice analysis of over um, 480 patients where he showed that if you ventilate somebody properly in the intensive care, and are 100% compliant with 
uh, lung protective ventilation during their ICU stay, their mortality compared to non-compliance is 8% lower risk of death at two years. So what you do early translates into long-term outcomes. And I think we do really do need to be thinking about these longer-term outcomes. And, and Margaret Herridge you know, is brilliant in this area, and she really pushes us all to think about the, the complex, multi-dimensional outcomes that are important to patients and families uh, whenever we're designing clinical trials. So I think it's a, a really important area. So how long is the piece of string then? What is long-term? Is it a year, 18 months? So uh, again, Margaret's been leading the way and has shown that there's substantial morbidity up to five years. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of the work is at one to two years. I mean, our our recent study looked at one year and, and that was the data that I was mentioning, but uh, there, there's no point at which people have returned to their baseline function uniformly. So long-term will probably extend beyond five years, but that's where we are at the moment. I uh, described uh, Professor McCauley as... Uh one of the most flexible intensivists. I'm going to add verbally dexterous uh, to that. Over to you. Oh, what a great discussion. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks for your time. Um, if I may put you on the spot here, if you live on a planet where you can only do two things to treat ARDS, which would it be? Mm. Turn down the ventilator and then turn it down a bit. Okay. <laughs> I, I think we no. do live on that planet where there's only <laughs> yeah. two things we can do. Yeah. yeah, maybe prone as well. Turn down the ventilator and prone. And, and prone. Well, that, such a great discussion. Thanks for your time. Oh, great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.